It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to part two of our Dark Horse Contenders podcast with the Hot Hand Serie XJ and Jeff joining us this week. In part one, we discussed the Thunder, the Pelicans, the Bucks. And in part two, it gets even spicier as we discuss their home team, the Knicks. Stay tuned for that. We have a really interesting conversation. And after that, we get into some Cleveland Cavalier chat and the Dallas Mavericks as well. Is Luka Doncic the best player in the NBA? I don't know, but it's something that we will discuss. I hope you enjoy the next hour of this episode. If you're coming in from part one, thanks for clicking on part two. Enjoy. They're really good. I feel like people were correctly hyping them a month ago. And then Randall and OG Ananobi got hurt. And now they've lost some games and it's like, you know, people are getting their Knicks takes off. Um, You know, if you're listening to this and you listen to Jack, you're probably already one of the more rational NBA fans. And I want to remind anyone listening or let anyone listening know that me and XJ, while we are Knicks fans, we're very much not, you know, hot take artists. We're not, we're not going to come on here and be like, Oh, Knicks number one, you know, like we're going to, we're going to give analysis that we believe in and that is as close to objective as we can. And I truly believe that the Knicks are a legitimate title contender. Like I, I would, you know, you brought up the odds earlier right now. DraftKings has them, I believe at plus 2200 to win the championship and they have Milwaukee plus 700. Um, If somebody offered me, just those direct relative odds on Milwaukee versus New York, I would like spend every dollar that I had on the Knicks. And I might even go so far as to say that I would just take the Knicks over the Bucks straight up right now. I still don't think either is going to beat Boston. So it's kind of a cop-out bet by me because it's just like, I even if the Knicks don't win, I can just be like, oh yeah, Boston won anyways, you know. But I do think the Knicks are that good. They're, they have one of, if not the deepest rosters in the league. And... Their five, their healthy five-man starting lineup is legitimately blitzing teams, like just absolutely dismantling um, opponents during that 15-game stretch when they had them before. Before Randall uh, got hurt, just so p- in case people don't know, Brunson, Divincenzo, Ogian, Nobi, Randall, and Hardenstein. 
they're beating teams by almost 17 points per hundred possessions when those five are on the court together. So, I mean, I'll let XJ expand, but they're just a really, really good team and there aren't really weaknesses. They can shoot, they can defend, they can rebound. I, they're going to be a tough out for anybody who plays them. Yeah, uh, like Jeff said, we are not hot take artists or anything like that. The Knicks are winning a championship this year. Um, no, I'm, 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 I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> I don't mean that, but almost, uh, almost, honestly. And to, to Jeff's point, like, so to me, the Knicks, the only, only issue for them is their health situation. Um, that's the only issue. At full strength, and... I mean, when I say full strength, I mean including with Mitchell Robinson back, who who may be coming back soon, which is incredible. They're clearly at the top of the second tier of contenders to me. Um, we're talking about a playoff roster of Brunson, DiVincenzo, OG Ananobi, Randall Hartenstein, Hart, Bogdanovich, Burks, and Robinson. Like, I just think that they literally have everything like just truly like elite playmaking elite shooting elite defense elite rebounding elite depth elite lineup versatility which i think is really important for the playoffs in terms of them not being disadvantaged based on matchup like some of the other teams that we've talked about it's a really almost perfectly constructed team besides some clunkiness with randall and brunson um, and even despite that, they play pretty well off of one another, despite like not being a perfect synergetic pair. Um, so I, I would go as far as to say, like, even without Randall, I would put them still in like the second tier of title contender um, because that's how well those other parts mesh with each other. So, yeah, I, you know, it, it, I, I know I have a Knicks blanket behind me that my dog is laying on currently. But, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm really genuinely not like a homer or anything. I, I think I, 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 anybody in, in Knicks Twitter is, gets on me, in, in fact, for my, for my, for my non-homerness. Um, but I do think that the, just objectively the lineup is or the roster is really constructed and built to do well in the playoffs. Like they can create shots. Brunson's going to be able to create shots against anyone and has really proven himself already in the playoffs that he's not stoppable no matter how much you game plan for him. And now they just have the spacing that they never have had. They have the defense that they never have had. They have the rebounding that they always have had. And it's just, I think it's it's all working well for them. To me, it's all about health. And if they're healthy, I, I definitely have them in the top four or five contenders in the NBA. I don't think that there's anything controversial about that from a completely neutral view of the Knicks. And guys, you were, you know, as you claimed, very, very close to neutral there. So fantastic. You know, well done. As advertised, guys, go and listen to the hot hand theory. You're not just going to get fed, fed like a load of bing bong or anything like that. Um, I've, you I've will, got a you will though, Jack, yeah. you, you will okay. get conversations like, would you rather have Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle or Jalen Brunson and a clone of Jalen Brunson. So that's, you know, top tier, top tier content over, over at hot hand theory. <laughs> GMs need to invest in cloning. It's, it's as simple as that. We need to get on it. I mean, every team in the league could use OG Ananobi. We need 30 OG Ananobis. This is the, this is the podcast that we should be doing. We should be investing in this stuff, but the, the first confession that I really want to get off my chest is that I love watching Julius Randle play basketball. And I might be the first person in podcast history to say that. As someone that has come to the game in the last few years, I love the force that he plays with. I love the general sort of 
like we spoke about with Brandon Ingram, the floor raising element of his play. I love the I'm him element of his play. I'm never going to forget the three, the fadeaway three that he hit against Miami last year. You know, sort of two. I don't even know if it's two hands in his face. I think it was four hands in his face. And I just think it's more it's more sort of tough breaks that he hasn't necessarily had at work out for him yet in the postseason. So I'm a big Julius Randle guy. Um, I think that on balance, a lot of the stuff that you guys have said is completely true. I think my only concerns would be, and it's really harsh, they're all sort of Boston focused. So I think that when you made the OG Ananobi trade and you traded Emmanuel quickly, you moved to sort of having one guy on the perimeter that could create shots at a really high level. And I know that Randall can sort of do that in part, but a lot of that operation sort of comes in the post, in the mid post, around the elbows, etc. Um, I worry about Boston. I worry about Drew Holiday and Derek White both being able to sort of tag team Jalen. I think that that's a little bit of an issue. And if they are able to not even sort of take him out of the game, because I think what we saw last year, particularly in the series against like Miami, his efficiency went down, but he is going to put points on the board. And I think that New York are going to be a team that are able to bring teams sort of into rock fights, even if they've been great offensively this year. They then have Jason Tatum to guard Julius Randle. And I think during the regular season on a lot of nights, the fact that Randle brings so much physicality and so much sort of core strength is a thing that really sort of creates advantages for him. I I, I really fancy like Jason Tatum standing a really good chance of nullifying Julius Randle. And I think it'd be really unfortunate if we keep seeing playoff series where we don't get to see true Julius. I don't know if I'm going to be the guy to start the Julius Randle muse page on Twitter, but I'm almost there. <laughs> I'm almost there. But I, like the depth is there. Um, my, my one concern might be Mitchell Robinson. I think that he he played phenomenally well at the start of the season. He was an incredible defensive anchor and he did a hell of a lot on the boards. But um, I think even just seeing some of the cuts that OG Ananobi makes all the time, I don't know if they're available with Mitchell Robinson on the court. His average shot distance is 1.1 feet this year, which must be a record. Um, I, I worry about the state. Uh, I worry about the spacing. There were times so, sort of like pre deadline where the Knicks were linked to DeMar DeRozan. And I just thought, are we seriously just going sort of all floater team, all mid range, as many sort of soft shots off the rim as possible. And we're going to see Mitchell Robinson have the 15 offensive rebound game in the postseason. Um, <laughs> guys, what are your worries about the Boston matchup? Because I'm, I'm pretty not confident against like every other team in the East. I think that they face challenging series, but Boston's the one that we've got to talk about if we're talking about being a contender. Yeah. My main concern, it's twofold. One, that Boston's just too good. That like, they're just too good. Um, the second thing is it, it, it lies in the Knicks coach, Tom Thibodeau. Like I think Tibbs is a really good regular season coach, but Boston and the way they space the floor and how small they can go, especially if Mitchell Robinson's healthy, I'm not sure we'll see a minute on the court where the Knicks try to match them small for small. And I could see that getting just extremely exposed by, by Boston. Just as you just said, the, this, the paint getting clunky and then Boston just doing the thing where they drive and kick and drive and kick. And Isaiah Hardenstein and Mitchell Robinson are forced to go out to the perimeter and try to guard three pointers and Boston just gets whatever they want. So to me, because of the existence of Chris Stapps Porzingis and because basically their backup center is Al Horford, who is 
still somehow at this age, should, should I put his name in quotes? You put like his Shane name Shane. in quotes recently. Jeff did. That was like it's like five months ago. And then he like um, was awesome since then. But but yeah. proceed. Um, yeah, uh, Al Horford, who's basically just KP light still at his old age. Like I hate that part of the matchup for the Knicks, and I think because the Knicks depth is so great, and because they have so much size on the wings, if we don't see a lineup that has all of Randall Ananobi heart with a couple of shooters and Tibbs is just going to die with the sh- die on the ship of we need a true rim protecting center even though the team they're playing basically has no interest in getting to the rim and all they want is to create wide open threes i think that that'll be a huge problem for the Knicks yeah for the, for for the pod audience um who can't see that you know, we can mute and unmute ourselves when we are and aren't talking. Um, Jeff and I were both racing to unmute ourselves to say the concern was Tom Thibodeau with regard to the playoff situation. We're both like, wait, I, you're going to say it. I'm going to say it. Who's going to say it? Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do think it, it is the concern because, as I mentioned, when I said, you know, it was intentional when I said that they have the Knicks have elite lineup versatility. I think they do, and they can match up with anyone based on their roster, their depth, and the guys that they have. You can mix and match and match up well with anyone, including Boston. But Tibbs and the coaching staff don't seem to always be willing to win in different ways, and I think that that's the biggest complaint. Like You have to be able to say, okay, this series, Mitch, maybe it's not your series. Maybe you play a few minutes here and there. Tibbs... And the, the, you know, the Knicks coaching staff, they want to win in the same way. They want to get offensive rebounds. Like you said, Jack, the this idea of getting DeMar DeRozan and everyone takes short mid-range shots that, you know, glance softly off the off the rim and, and Mitch cleans it all up and, and gets 15 to 20 offensive rebounds. Like that would that's like their wet dream, honestly. Like they would love to see that happen. <laughs> I, I, but I, I, a lot of us, you know, in the Knicks, you know, content creation community or who have anything to do with like analyzing basketball who watch the Knicks, it, it can be frustrating because there's no reason to have to play that way when you have such versatility, when you have an OG and an OB who can clearly play the four and is so versatile that in some cases you can have, you know, potentially have a Randall and OG pairing because OG can pick up the slack defensively, can guard a lot of fives. Um, so there's just a lot that you can do in terms of mixing and matching that the Knicks you know, I, and I'm going to say they won't do it. And that's that's kind of the issue. So the Boston matchup is the big problem to me. Um, I do think the one thing I disagree with you on, Jack, is that I don't think Tatum's a great defensive matchup for Julius Randle. I think the, the big the, the anecdote that I talk about a lot is, you know, the Knicks were lo- talking about getting OG and an for a long time he, when he was on Toronto. And, you know, I was a big fan of OG, always have been like his defense. I think he's clearly a top five defensive player in the NBA um, at any position, in my opinion, and have thought this for a couple years. And the Knicks went into Toronto to play them. And then Julius Randle just bullied and pummeled OG and Anobi all night. And it was like they were seeking out OG and Anobi. And Julius was just like put him under the rim and was just scoring on him at will. And it was like, this is not a good showcase for OG and Anobi to come to New York. And honestly, I think that's the only matchup in the NBA that's that difficult for OG. And luckily they're on the same team now. But I just think that if you have 
you know, wings who try to guard Julius, uh, if they don't have, you know, the, the strength and the girth to, to, to stand with him, you know, he's going to punish them. And I do think that Tatum can, can fall to some of that as well. So I do think it's a team defensive effort to stop Julius for the Celtics. Um, if that matchup were to come to pass. That game XJ was like the peak, the peak of like, you guys think this guy's better than RJ Barrett. You remember, you remember those <laughs> yes, days? Yes, I remember <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah, Julius turned him into a twig. This guy's not better yeah. than RJ. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Man, why did I, it was Brian Rosillo and Bill Simmons that made that comparison where they went, is OG really that, like that much better than RJ Barrett? And then suddenly it just goes downstream in all the content creation waves. The one thing I'll say, so I, I don't remember that game specifically as like a non-Knicks, non-Raptors fan, but I do listen to a lot of Raptors Republic and I'll try and tune in as much as possible to the Raptors. Um, OG really quiet quit towards the end of his Raptors tenure. And I think that we've seen him have like really good possessions against Giannis Antetokounmpo and, you know, he gets switched onto fives and he holds up. I, I'm not suggesting that like Julius was doing his back, his back down and OG was like, oh no, I'm getting back. <laughs> I'm under the rim. What am I going to do? <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> yeah. I think when he locks in, I, I really trust him to guard any guy in the league. And that's the really interesting thing with this like Nick Celtics matchup. OG, more than anyone in the league, is the one that is able to shut a star out of a game. He's done it consistently to Devin Booker has sort of fits against OG Ananobi. So I think that if you can just task OG, perhaps even lean away from the flexibility element and just say, just make sure that Jason Tatum goes out there and has the worst playoff series of his life. I'm really interested to see where Boston goes from there when they're not getting that sort of elite usage from their 1A guy. I, I think that suddenly the best offense in the league could start to crack and crumble a little bit. Especially with DiVincenzo defending as he has, because look, they're going to try to attack attack Brunson. But if you can put Brunson on Drew Holiday, I think the Knicks will live with the Celtics like, warping their offense and being like here drew holiday beat the Knicks. you know like that's that's a win for the knicks um i still uh, look you you look at the champions of the past few years look at the lakers in the bubble season the lakers basically were uh jekyll and hyde series to series like they were, they had entire series where none of their centers played i think it was the rocket series they basically just told dwight howard and um javel mcgee i think they were like yeah, you guys can you guys can sit out this series. You're you're not going to play at all, and I think that level of versatility is required to win a championship. If you're a team like the Knicks, you know, if you're a team like the Nuggets last year, I, I said it recently. I don't think there's any team in the league, including the Celtics, that knows what it wants to do more than the Nuggets. Like the Nuggets are just like we're going to do what we do all the time. Good luck to you. If you beat us, you beat us. It's really hard to win a championship that way. You have to be really, really good. It's easy to do that when you have Jokic and Murray, or specifically Jokic. Jalen Brunson's amazing. He's going to end the season in MVP conversations, deservedly so, on, on the fringe. I don't think the Knicks have the top t- top end talent to say, this is what we do best. Good luck against us. I think a team that is more talented and is more flexible will be able to expose some of the Knicks' weaknesses. And I think they have to be willing to be adaptable to that and take a punch and adjust. 
Yeah, and I, I, you know, forgive me for for, for moving us to a different team, but I, we're just talking about lineup flexibility and and roster flexibility and all that stuff. And, and the team that comes to mind is one of my second tier contenders, which is the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, the the Cavs have been one of my you know favorite teams to monitor, to follow, to watch, and a lot of that is because. Uh, because of confirmation bias, the Cavs have been able to kind of uh, help be a case study for something that I believe, which is that it's not just about having the best talent on the court, but the most cohesive talent. And cohesive talent is not just a little more important than best talent, but like much more important than best talent. And we've seen the Cavs without Darius Garland and without Evan Mobley be like the super Cavs, like the best version of themselves. And I believe it. It, the best version of the Cavs like doesn't have those guys in the lineup, N- not necessarily at all, but not at the minutes that they play and not in the lineup and rotations that they play um, in the lineup constructions that they play. So I think that the Cavs are really up there with the Knicks in the East in terms of the second tier. I think it's undeniable what they've done. Uh, and I think that if Bickerstaff doesn't force Mobley and Allen lineups out there, which are obviously really good defensively, but, essentially completely shut down their offense and if he doesn't force out Mitchell and Garland to always be on their the court together if he uses his lineup strategically and sparingly as a weapon I think they're a legit contender like I they're they're plus 14 and a half per 100 over the first 21 games of 2024 with the best defense in the league and we haven't seen the best of Darius Garland like yet so far this season I just think you can't dismiss it in my opinion and I think I think they have a ton of weapons, a ton of versatility as well. It just depends on how they're deployed. And I think coaching really has to be willing to to do some sort of unconventional stuff and really lean on what they know, what they have seen has worked to a really high degree, which is the Donovan Mitchell show with a bunch of shooters and defense around them. I found it strange that so many non-Cavs fans made fun of their offseason acquisitions like, oh, big deal, you got Max Struess and Georges Niang. And, but did they watch the playoffs last season? Like, the whole reason the Knicks were able to bully them and do what they did against them is because the Cavs basically had four good players. Like that was it. They had, they had four good players who aren't a seamless fit. And it was like any time any of the other guys were on the court or had to go beyond their minor roles, the Knicks just torched them. The Knicks averaged like 98 points a game that series and won it easily. Um, So I love XJ's point about embracing this newfound depth and embracing lineup versatility because you have all these different ways of letting Mitchell and to a lesser degree Garland be maximized when they're on the court. You just have to do it in a non-traditional way. If, If Bickerstaff thinks that the way they're going to get to a championship this year is just to play Mitchell, Garland, Mobley, and Allen 40-plus minutes a game and have them all come together, it wouldn't surprise me if they lost in the first round. But you can actually play them fewer minutes, except for Mitchell. I think Mitchell should just basically be out there (laughs) as much as possible because he's awesome. But you can actually play these other guys fewer minutes and get more from them if you put them in lineups more conducive to their skill sets. Yeah, guys, I had the Cavs as the one seed going into the year and was just sort of incredibly embarrassed up until this, you know, sort of Mobley Garland joint injury at the same time. And, you know, now I feel quite smug, even though they're probably not going to achieve it. 
Um, I really rated the Max Truce acquisition. I thought that George Niang would play a slightly bigger role than he has. Unfortunately, the minivan has sort of stalled a little bit this year. But, you know, Sam Merrill has been able to inject incredible sort of three-point attempt volume when he's been on the court. Dean Wade seems to be a really reliable shooter. Isaac Okoro is shooting 39% from three, and he's driving at a much higher level. If, you know, guys are looking for any sort of content on the Cavs, Tony Pesta does a really good job on X, and he sort of makes me feel informed so I can actually talk about these guys here. But, Jeff, go on, man. I was just going to say, and somehow Okoro is still only 22 years old, which makes no sense. Like, he was... Wasn't he a bust like three years ago? Like, I, and I've always <laughs> been... Look, my my Twitter handle is Frank Barrett. Like, Frank Nilakino was at one time someone I was like, oh my god, he's better than you think he is. I have a soft <laughs> spot for Okoro. I've always thought that people were too hard on him because he doesn't have a deep bag and stuff like that, you know? So it's nice to see him shooting. Crazy to me, he's still only 22 years old. That's just you know still plenty of time for him to figure it i i still have that affinity for patrick williams i believe same draft class as well and another guy where the age you just look and you go he's going to be on his second contract and he's going to be 22 23 rolling into the playoffs like or rolling into the next regular season but sort of coming back to the Cavs, they have experimented a little bit with staggering the lineups i think that i've noticed sort of off memory um, Mitchell and Allen are still tending to play around 36 minutes per game uh, with Garland and Mobley's return. Garland and Mobley are playing about 30. So you can see sort of staggered minutes there where they're fielding Garland and Mobley more at the same time. Um, it it really does sort of come down to egos and maybe even come down to sort of top-down management as well. I'd be really concerned if, if the ultimate path sort of looks like maybe we're going to have to trade one of these guys, whether that be you know, your hand is forced with Donovan Mitchell, in which case it would be really embarrassing to sort of like really bench Darius Garland or really bench Evan Mobley during the postseason. It's it's sort of a real, like, how much can we sacrifice this year for team success in comparison to like, how much will we get clowned when we go into San Antonio and say, yeah, we want five first round picks for Darius Garland. Yes, we know he only played 25 minutes per game in the postseason, if you know what I mean. But I think that they're a team, again, they have real optionality. Jeff, you made a great point sort of at the start of this where you just said they had four good players against the Knicks last year. And I think it's arguable that they run sort of eight, nine, maybe even 10 deep. I, I don't have the roster in front of me here, but you know, finding Craig Porter as an undrafted free agent, finding Sam Merrill and actually trusting him this year, Dean Wade being healthy, Max Struess coming in and being an absolute innings eater for them this year and being a hypothetical shooter, at least, to where he's respected on the perimeter. And he takes really, really hard threes as well. Not all three-point percentages are created the same way, and Max Struess, like tries to get his in the most difficult way possible. Um, aside from like your Lucas step-back 30-footers and you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> I agree. I think that the Cavs are a real swing team, and I think it's not necessarily just for on-court reasons. I really think that... There might be a lot of ego and there might be a lot of bravado there. And that's just speculation. I think to just cap off XJ's point about the, the versatility in the team construct, it kind of reminds me of the, obviously they don't have the same top end talent as this team, but it kind of reminds me of the 2012 Heat's title run when they won their first championship with LeBron. When Bosch got hurt and Spolster was like, holy shit, LeBron can play power forward. And then that just like, that almost changed the league. You know, like they, they, they went small and Bosch came back from injury and they were like, well, we don't need a center anymore. Like we, we actually benefited a lot from some of the things that we got when LeBron played power forward. 
Now, all of a sudden, you have Chris Bosh playing center and Chris Bosh shooting threes. Like the Warriors get the credit for the small ball and the three point revolution, but that Heat team and the Knicks team of 2012, 2013, they, they were actually laid some of the early breadcrumbs. To bring it back to the Cavs, you can't deny how good Mitchell plus role players who just fill, who are maximized filling a certain role has been. You, you can't. You can't just be like, okay, yeah, that was nice for a little bit, but we're just going to go back to what we were before when we were underachieving. So you have to find ways to optimize the fully healthy roster around this new information. And I actually think, and I assume actually thinks too, that that could be beneficial to their overall ceiling in the postseason. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. And I just, <clears throat> I mean, as Jack mentioned, we're talking about egos and things like that. And also we're talking about potentially being worried about diluting players' values on the trade market, um, those things really have to come into play. And so I, I just almost feel like they won't be able to put out their optimized version of their team, Like, it, which is really funny to say. It's like, if they were all in on this year, hey, this is our last ride. Let's do everything we can to win a championship this year. I'd have them higher, honestly. I have them higher. I'd be like, well, they can do anything. You know, they can they can have Mobley sit a whole series if he needs to. You know, wh- whatever the case may be. Um, not that they would do that. I'm just saying, like, they'd be able to. But I think because of these things, they're not going to be able to bench a Darius Garland. Like, it's just not going to happen. He's not going to play. You know, 15 minutes in a, in a game in a playoff series. And the same goes for Evan Mobley. I just don't see those things happening. So I do think that limits their ceiling. Just that 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 not being a realistic option for them. Actually, we're just going to have to have a whole Evan Mobley, uh, Jared Allen podcast. Cause like this Evan Mobley slander cannot go on any longer. I'm 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 I, sick of it. I am <laughs> I am putting my foot down here. I've been on he's, it for a while. He's bet he's better than Jared Allen, and like we need to we need to just we need to sort this out. Like I think the Cavs' highest ceiling is if Jared Allen is the one who takes the back seat. Because look, Mobley hasn't found a shot the way people thought he would. Is like, but we he has not been given consistent run as a stretch center, and I do think that he is slightly more skilled. If you surrounded Mobley with four shooters, the rim protection would remain the same. The only thing I would worry about is them getting beat up on the defensive glass, a la Chet Holmgren. But I think you're winning everywhere else if Mobley was elevated in that role. And look, I was I was joking. I, 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 I'm not actually angry at XJ for, say, for holding this opinion. But I do think that when we talk about versatility, I think the Cavs would, be, would benefit a lot if they gave Mobley more of the the one big run than Jared Allen. I think to me, the issue real quick, just to respond to that to, with the Mobley situation is the rebounding. And, and I've, I made this comparison. I, I, I don't think that Chet is as good a defensive player as Evan Mobley is, but it's a little bit like having Chet as your center without the shooting. And it's like, if I, I don't want Chet to be my center, if he's not going to be able to space the floor, like I, it just, his value becomes completely different. He becomes an entirely different player, a much more limited player. And that's how I see Evan Mobley. I don't see him holding up that way. So that, that's, that's really been my issue with Mobley. And it, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, me and, 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 and Mensa, who I, I work with, one of my colleagues on the Knicks film school podcast that, that I also do, um, we used to talk about how like it would have been so crazy if the Cavs included Evan Mobley in the trade for Donovan Mitchell and kept Lowry marketing and actually got because obviously Mobley would have way more uh, value on the market 
and actually got to retain some of their draft capital. And imagine this Cavs team with Lowry Markkinen plus like a couple extra first round picks. That would be, they'd be an entirely different situation as an organization, in my opinion. Assuming, wow. assuming that Lowry like becomes Lowry. It's, it's kind of, it's, I don't know what the right word is, but it's, you can't just assume he would have done what he did in Utah in Cleveland, like in a totally different role. Yeah. I mean, I, that's fair, but I, I think he would have, and I obviously have no, nothing to back that up, but I do think a lot of the strides that Lowry made, um, came from playing on the Finnish national team, um, where he got a lot more responsibility and a lot more confidence. I don't really think it has to do a ton with like his role in the NBA, but yeah, I, I obviously that's true. But yeah, I just imagine that as like a hypothetical. And I think that that's incredible to think about. I, I just want to say, I feel like the Evan Mobley must shoot threes is kind of like if a couple of years ago, everyone was saying like Trey Young cannot be a starting point guard if he doesn't play all NBA level defense. Like, I feel so sorry for him in terms of like the comparisons that have been made. He is probably the only elite big that has come into the league and been told, no, you have to strictly play in two man big lineups. Basically, I think it's so hard for his development. And I think often... Uh, Jeff, you cut out for a little bit for me, but I'm pretty sure you made the same point. It's much easier to be a stretch five than it is to be a stretch four as a seven footer. I think the speed of closeouts is you know, a massive difference. You look at someone like Miles Turner, how he's blossomed since Demantis Sabonis has moved on. Just the extra sort of split second that you get to, you know, make sure that your footwork is right. Maybe it's you know, you're more involved in the pick and roll. You've just got a different defender on you each time. Going from like a non-shooting center to a stretch four is a massive development leap that you're asking people to take, uh, that you're asking Evan Mobley to take. And I think it's sort of really harsh in that point. But I will say in terms of development, I think that Jarrett Allen has probably developed as much as any big over the last sort of over this regular season, uh, sort of like anyone else in the NBA. I know that Vic has like progressed an insane level as well, but if you think of the player that came over in the Brooklyn Nets trade, I really saw him as a solid rim protector, a decent rebounder, and a great rim runner as well. I think this year we've seen real actual handoff skill, and I wish that there was a stat for tracking like the quality of dribble handoff play. Um, a moment that scarred me this year was watching the previously mentioned Bismack Biombo trying to run handoff action for the Memphis Grizzlies when they didn't have <laughs> Desmond Bain on the court. And obviously, Jar Morant was suspended as well. And it's like, I'm sorry, it's just not commanding the same energy. And a lot of that is to do with sort of the shooting that you have around it. But I think he's become really talented at running that dribble handoff play. And the assists have gone up to reflect that. And he's got incredibly soft touch sort of around the rim, not just as a rim runner. You know, I think he leads the league in sort of hook shot percentage. I saw a stat from NBA University the other day. Really, really soft touch. And he's starting to space out to sort of like 12 to 16 feet. A lot of the time when we speak about spacing, it's like, well, is he Miles Turner? Does he shoot 38% from three on five attempts per game? Not a lot of centers do that at all. But if you can be a guy that provides mid-range spacing, that can be really valuable as well. And I think that we've really seen that blossom in the time that Mobley has been out and not necessarily Garland. I think it probably would have still been there if Garland was playing. But um, yeah, I don't know quick. where I am Real quick, uh, Mobley doesn't provide that either. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> so that's a problem too, but I agree with that. That's a great to, point, Jack. To back up uh, what you're saying about Allen, um, he's shooting 53% from the mid-range. 53% from the mid-range, and he's averaging 
over three attempts, which is in the 65th percentile. So like, it's not like he just shot five times, you know, like he's actually, I, I, I couldn't believe that looking at, it. I can't even, like I watch a ton of calves and maybe I just block them from my memory because the idea of that shot would annoy me so much, but I, I can't even picture it. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a nice development and he has really good chemistry with Darius Garland. Really good. Like you can just picture Darius Garland snaking in the paint, like doing the Steve Nash snake and finding, yeah. uh, finding Jared Allen at these weird angles um, take over. The percentages are really good, but uh, the aesthetics aren't incredible in terms of like his, his jump shooting form. It looks a little sort of clunky. So fair play for blocking it out. I think that a lot of people have, because it's like, that doesn't look like a jump shot that goes in half the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that's definitely true. And I, I do think it's cool that he can extend it. I, so when you, mid, the mid range is a large area for sure. And, um, looking to, to drill down a little bit, he's 20 of 40 on field goal attempts between 10 and 14 feet. So he's shooting 50%, but a very low volume, um, 48 of 85 on shots between five and nine feet. So, you know, 56.5%. So it's still, he's still doing incredible. And then six of 14 on shots between 15 and 19 feet. So that's really extending it out when we're getting past 15 feet and he's still shooting about 43% on those attempts, obviously again, very low volume. So it's still an expanding part of his game. It's like, he's like, like you mentioned, Jack, like he's expanding a lot of his game um you know speaking of guys that are younger than you think <laughs> jared allen's 25 i feel like jared allen's 31 like i it, it's really incredible so he's not even necessarily in his prime yet and you can imagine him still adding components to his game so i i do think that jared allen's like at this stage a little on the underrated side in terms of what he could bring and what his ceiling is trajectory wise um and he's, he's been able to unlock a ton of that especially in the time that, you know, Mobley's not standing there next to him clunking up the paint. So <laughs> and as if you can't tell to, to, to the, the, the audience, to the drop step audience, I'm not the biggest Evan Mobley fan. So <laughs> I, I will just say the other thing that I love about Evan Mobley that I think that we might get to see a little bit more now is during that first season, because they were so supersized because they sort of had Lowry playing at three, you got to see Evan Mobley sort of like having these Superman possessions where he did the Kevin Garnett, Minnesota Timberwolves thing. And I think that when you get into playoff matchups, I think it could be really interesting if you can say to Jarrett Allen, we're trusting you to be the solo rim protector, go and give Evan Mobley the Jason Tatum matchup, go and see how he deals with seven foot of length that can actually sort of move his feet on the perimeter or go and have him wreak havoc, like right at the point of attack. I love when we see sort of like mad scientist experiments with these kind of things. And I think that Evan could be really useful in that sense. But for me, the Cavaliers are just like we've said, they've sort of got like a first round exit ceiling or a conference finals to maybe even final ceiling if everything breaks right. Yeah, they can, it's it's extremely volatile and typical XJ ignoring that Evan Mobley shooting 40% from three this year. You know, he's launching it. He's launching it from beyond the arc and ah, just, <laughs> just hiding, hiding that evidence under the rug. I can't, can't believe it. I'm not going to add context to that. We're going to go. Yeah, with that. Don't, we're don't, gonna move please forward. don't. We're going to move don't forward. Don't add context <laughs> to how many, like, how many attempts he has. Guys, we're an hour and 35 minutes since the podcast. Usually I'd wrap it up by now, but. One of the first podcasts I listened to from you was your all-star review and you sort of rehashed a Luca debate that you had. And I think that this sort of did really well for the hot hand theory. This um it reached a lot of viewers, it reached a lot of ears, etc. Define define well, Jack. 
any publicity is good publicity. That's, okay, the, that's all right. the standard <laughs> thing, right? Okay. I, I, I'm not in your DMs. I, I'm not checking the comment section on these things. I'm just jealous when I'm seeing like the viewing figures on Twitter. But I, I would feel more comfortable placing Luka Doncic as the best player in the NBA than I would placing him outside the top five. I think that's how I want to word it. Um, I think that he has been absolutely phenomenal this year. He's continued to develop his game. He's been a little bit better defensively. Kyrie Irving has been able to flourish around him. Uh, the free throw percentage has gone up. He's shooting 78% from the free throw line this year, which is important when you're a guy that gets to the charity stripe 10 times a game. Uh, in the month of January, is this January or February? Uh, sorry, over the last 15 games, he was averaging a 36-point triple-double and the net rating was actually bouncing a little bit higher. And I want to talk about the Mavericks as... For me, a finals contender and a full-on championship contender now because of something that we mentioned slightly earlier on in the podcast. I think he is the ultimate inelastic scorer. I, I don't know if there's been a playoff series where we've seen him sort of felled by elite perimeter defense and he's played against the Clippers twice, three times now. I might be wrong on that front. Obviously, if you play against the Utah Jazz back in the Rudy Donovan Mitchell days, it's sort of like to borrow Shaquille O'Neal's phrase, barbecue chicken. But... I look at Luca and I just think this guy is providing you such a high floor in terms of not just regular season offense, but playoff offense. And I think the moves that they made at the deadline, they look like the one team in the West that is now truly prepped for Jokic. I think they can like genuinely throw at him Derek Lively, Maxi Kleber, Daniel Gafford, PJ Washington, and dare I say it, Dwight Powell for like three minutes if you want to eat up some fouls. I don't know. But they're incredibly deep. I think that Kyrie looks fantastic as he sort of always does when he's actually on the court. He hasn't tweeted much recently, which always tends to be a good thing. I'm really, really high on them now. Guys, what are your thoughts on the Mavericks in general? And tell me a little bit. Let's have a therapy session about your previous Luka Doncic debates. Jeff, you should you should initiate this this conversation from your end. <laughs> So I have to be the villain. Okay. I'm I've been overly I've been overly negative on this podcast. And so I guess I should preface this by saying that I agree with Jack. I think the Mavericks have a good chance in the playoffs. I'm but for people who didn't listen to the podcast, my whole my the baseline of my theory is basically that Luca plays a suboptimal style of basketball, that he is the inverse of a Steph Curry. All of his impact is created by what he does with the ball in his hands. And I see him similar to LeBron during his first Cleveland stint. Now, that is obviously a very good comparison in a lot of ways. LeBron is one of, if not the greatest basketball players who's ever lived. And he won MVP his last two seasons in Cleveland. They won 66 and 61 games. They were title favorites both years. But LeBron himself has talked about how he had to go to Miami and he had to grow up and he had to learn a more well-rounded style of basketball to truly unlock himself as a full uh, basketball player impacting in multiple ways. You know, you, a lot of people like to compare his 2009 to his 2013. And if you just look at it, glance at the statistics and the impact, they are pretty similar. But if you zoom in, 
how could 2013 LeBron not have been better? He could, he shot 40% from three. He was arguably the most valuable defender in the NBA. He was doing all these things impacting the game that didn't involve the ball in his hands. Bring this back to Luca. I still see someone who, while he has improved at the margins, he's improved at what he's already great at. From a profile standpoint, he's still largely the same player he was as a rookie. He dominates the ball. It's really, really hard to build a team around a guy who basically turns all of his teammates into role players. Like we've seen Jalen Brunson, we've seen Chris Porzingis leave Dallas and immediately thrive. To me, that in and of itself gives you a relatively low ceiling. A team with Luka should not have a low ceiling. He's that good. Like you were saying, Jack, it's more likely that he's the best player in the league than he's the sixth best player in the league. I agree with that too. Like I think he has a legitimate MVP case this season. But to me, as long as he plays this style or at least this extreme of a style and isn't willing to reel it in, it's going to make it really, really hard for a team of his to win four playoff series because unless he has a generational postseason run, which I'm not ruling out, by the way, is totally, that's totally possible. But unless he has a generational postseason run, he's just not going to get enough help. And the conversation is always going to be about what they don't have. That's, that's at least my hypothesis. I'm not saying I'm definitely right, but that's what I b- believe currently. So, I will say this, uh, and I think Jeff's point is it's not really as controversial as it was kind of made out to be. I think it's probably, I mean, it's, it's, it's very rational. Um, I would say that Luca isn't LeBron, like, you know, he, he's less versatile than LeBron. And, you know, LeBron's gift is that he's so multi-skilled that he can mold better with other players, right? Like he can, you can put him with almost any star and he can make it work because he can do all these other things and he can just say, okay, you're good at that. All right. I'll do less of that. And I'll do more of this other stuff because he can do anything. Luca is not the same in that way. Luca has a more narrow skill set, but almost at as high a level in that narrow bit of skill as LeBron has. And I think he just, that means that he needs other players to mold around him. Like that's the only way he's going to win. He's not going to be able to do the molding. He's going to need other guys, other star level players to do the molding. And that does make it more difficult to build a championship roster around him. But I don't think it makes it not, you know, feasible or like, you know, something that we won't see. I I think we will see it because I think he is that good. I've always questioned the Luca and Kyrie fit. It's like Kyrie's not the guy to, to, you know, to do that with him, but they've had really good synergy this year. Like the Mavs have been absolutely dominant when they're on the court together better than when each, either of them are on the court without the other, um, as you would expect, but like way better. And a huge part of that is Kyrie is molding almost into the perfect co-star with him, which I would not have expected. Kyrie's been willing to play much more off the ball. 73% of his threes are assisted, which is a career high by far. (laughs) And that's compared to 51% of his threes being assisted last year. He's at 73% from 51% last year. 40% of all of Kyrie Irving's shots are assisted, which is also a career high. And that's including the years he played next to you know, LeBron James. <laughs> so, so, so Kyrie's really accepted this, this role. He's thrived in it, shooting one of his best marks from three as well. And to me, it's really 
above everything else, above like their, the, the, the recent hot stretch from the Mavs and, and kind of what we've seen from them lately. For me, it's Kyrie's role acceptance that makes them more of a potential second tier contender. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just think that Luca, when he has a guy who's willing to kind of take that role and, and excel at it the way that Kyrie is, and there's not a lot of guys who can be like, okay, I'm going to be like the best, one of the best off ball shooters in the league. And then when you're out Luca, then I'm going to be one of the best like on ball creators in the league as well. There aren't many guys who are going to be able to do that. And he's been able to take on that role. And so I can see a guy like what Kyrie Irvin has kind of like molded himself into being the perfect co-star for him to to actually elevate this team to a championship, real championship contender. That's such a good point about Kyrie because like you wouldn't think about him this way. You just think about Kyrie's career and he deserves so much credit for what he's molded himself into. It takes like you just you think about Kyrie. I don't think humility is the first thing that comes to mind when anybody thinks about Kyrie Irving the humility it takes at 31 years old when he's had the career he's had, when he's hit the shots that he's had hit the shot that he's hit to just be like, yeah, this is Lucas team. I'm just going to like fit in as best I can. And to maintain the overall impact. I mean, you tweeted it today, XJ. He is over a plus five offensive EPM the last six seasons or something like that. Five seasons, eight seasons in a row, eight Uh, seasons in a row. It's like always the same. Yeah. in a row he's been in the 97th percentile or better in offensive epm and that's across three different teams that's four, four different, different teams four yeah. different teams excuse me um and a multitude of roles and to just continue to do that next to luca does give you some hope that like hey there there is a way for a guy of Kyrie's star power to excel playing next to luca as luca continues to excel that is a huge strike against my point. And I, to be honest, I would love to see that because I love just watching greatness in any sport and Luca is truly great. Um, and so to me, it's never even really been about Luca. It's about how much can the guys around him do. And to me, it's on Luca as the best player. He drives a lot of what his teammates can do. And if Kyrie can keep this up, I'd be more than happy to just say that my hypothesis is wrong, but this season will be a big season for them. So I think he's driven it in a far more positive way this year than certainly last year. And I think that's probably best reflected in the Dallas Mavericks pace rankings from last year to this year. They were 28th in pace last year, and you very much saw the Chris Paul style of I'm going to walk the ball up the floor and I'm going to dissect you in the half court every single time. They're ninth in pace this year, and I think that they've lent into sort of Kyrie leading transition a little bit more. I've seen a lot more sort of highlights of Luka Doncic hit ahead passes and really sort of looking to get his team in out in transition. And we've seen role players like Josh Green thrive a little bit more in that role. Um, the, The point about Kyrie, again, XJ, well done, man. Great point, because I think it's definitely the best co star that he's had to date. Uh, and that's no shade at Jalen Brunson. I think that Jalen Brunson is twice the player now than he was in Dallas when you look at sort of the generational shooting leap that he's taken over the past two seasons in terms of both volume and efficiency I don't know what his current numbers are but I'm pretty sure he was shooting at sort of like 42 43 percent around you know sort of you know for the Knicks this year and the volume has just skyrocketed I think if that was the Jalen Brunson that you had next to Luca and again we're sort of doing the Lowry Markin and if he was still on the Cavs thing here 
then we would have seen a far more sort of synergistic relationship. And Chris Stapps as well has completely developed his game since then. I think a lot of the problem, as well as the fact that Luca was so dominant, uh, sort of ball dominant, is Rick Carlisle really just wanted to go and stick Chris Stapps in the corner and wasn't really willing to sort of indulge him in sort of post touches or even like uh, delay action, sort of like running five out stuff. Boston has been phenomenally successful this year and in particular sort of like Jalen Brown playing the pick and roll with Chris Stapps, just opening up all that space. It was very much you will either rim run or you will hit corner threes for us. I think that there's been sort of real development there and I just look at this Mavericks team and I think that he's really had sort of like some of the worst supporting cast that we've seen over the past couple of years in terms of a start. It's interesting that we bring up sort of like 2009 Cavaliers LeBron He's had the Anderson Varejaus of the world. He's had the Zadruna Silgowskis. He's had, uh, you know, your Eric Snows, uh, Mo Williams, that kind of guy. I, I just think that if you'd stuck Luka Doncic on sort of 15 of the other 30 NBA franchises, they'd probably be looking like either like title favourites or second from title favourites. And I think this is something that you guys touched on on your pod where you sort of said, hey, if he's unhappy, New York certainly looks like the ecosystem that he could come and thrive in, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I definitely think so. I I, I and the, the truth is that no matter how much and I know again, Jeff's a huge fan of Luca. Like I, I think it's, some of his take was misconstrued in terms of his just kind of believing how good Luka Doncic is. But I think that as a Knicks fan, you know, I'd give up the house for Luka Doncic right now. <laughs> like, I like take your pick. You could have whoever you want, all the assets. And that just speaks to how good he is. And I think that any team would be willing to like make it work with regard to, okay, Luka's going to run the show. He's going to have an insane like 35 usage or whatever it is. And, you know, he's going to take all the step backs that he can and everybody else fit around him. I think you can make it work when you have guys that are willing to, in a coaching staff, like you mentioned, Jack, I think a coaching staff that's willing to like help indulge the other players enough that they feel like they're getting involved enough and have a big enough role. Um, and have the three and D guys to go around Luka Doncic who are going to play the role that they that they need to for to have team success. I think the Knicks have that, so you know it would be a team where he'd be where where I think they'd be a championship favorite if he were on that team, even considering what they would have to give up to get him. Yeah, for sure. I also just do a bad job of making it clear that I'm speaking relatively. Like people were in the comments, they're like, oh, you think Lucas sucks? It's like, no, like in my head, that's so obvious that I shouldn't have to make that clear. But like, we're talking about on the fringe of top five players. You know, if if I believe that Luca is one of the three to five most impactful players in the NBA, when I make these comments, I'm more talking about within that range of players. So if another top five player is maybe more fungible or more malleable, that could be the small margin that gives them an impact edge to me in terms of like dictating a team ceiling. So I need to do a better job of spelling these things out when we have these conversations, but sometimes I just get so caught up as far. I mean, yes, of course, like he'd be great on the Knicks. An interesting thing to me about this Mavericks team though, is that the trade has kind of cleaned up their roster and just made it very simple. Like just, they know who they want to play. And all of a sudden Josh Green's role is very defined. That's, pretty big for them because they don't he's one of the few development paths they have and getting Josh Green back into the starting lineup without it being super controversial getting him a really clean path to 25 plus minutes a night 
next to Kyrie, next to Luca. I don't know. Like I was down on the Mavericks earlier in the season because it's like you have Luca. How are you simultaneously not in the title picture and just have nothing to look forward to in the future? And now I feel pretty good about both their chances in this postseason, the noise they can make, and their next couple of seasons. I don't, if I was a Mavericks fan, I wouldn't worry about Luca wanting to go elsewhere unless they just flame out in the playoffs. I think they have a good chance of keeping him and a good chance of competing going forward. I, I completely agree. And I think that sort of like my final couple of points on why I believe that the Mavericks, like to me, aren't just a second tier contender. I'm I'm happy to sort of have them nearly up against anyone. I, again, it's 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 just the Nuggets. It's just the Nuggets, really. But um, I think that Luca and Kyrie really do guarantee you a top sort of 10 to 8 offense in the league. Uh, I know that that's sort of thrown around all the time in the league. But the fact that they sort of guarantee you that absolute floor, and it's not just a floor in terms of like we get a ton of threes up, that's how we're going to hit our offensive rating. Both of those guys are really talented at getting to the rim, particularly Luca. Kyrie, it doesn't matter if he's got to jump through hoops that are on fire, he's going to hit a reverse layup up against, you know, Victor Wembanyama. I think the fact that you have that such solid uh, base on offense, they're really seeming to get it together on the defensive end now. I think they started the year in November 24th in defensive rating. They jumped to 14th in December. In January, they were back down to 20th. But in February, um, they were third in defensive rating. They had a plus 12.6 net rating. They went seven and one. Uh, Their three-point shooting luck wasn't awful like in terms of like really skewing the results opponent shot 33.5 percent from three they allowed the seventh least three throws they took the 11th most it's just like a lot of indicators are starting to look to me like they're striking that balance that they struck for the conference finals run last uh i suppose it's 2022 um and now I just think that they've got slightly more talent. They've got guys that can attack closeouts at a much higher level than, you know, Reggie Bullock, who is playing small forward for that team. They've got more optionality, like even more optionality at the big position. And they've got even more star power than they have back in 2022 in terms of Kyrie as that ultimate running mate. You uh, you don't know it, Jack, but you just gave XJ and I PTSD flashbacks, bringing up Reggie Bullock and attacking closeouts to the the twenty twenty one playoffs. That was <laughs> that was a rough rough time for us as Knicks fans watching Reggie Bullock try to beat try to beat Trey Young off the dribble. But it's it's okay to kind of put a bow on the theme of all of our conversations here with the Mavericks. One other thing that the PJ Washington trade did is it gave them lineup versatility in case. Look, I love what Derek Lively's done, and I think they should be – I love the draft pick. I, I think it makes perfect sense that he's a natural fit with Luka. I don't know if he's going to hold up for 25 minutes a night in a playoff setting. I just think that that's a hard thing for a rookie center to do. I, this isn't – but all of a sudden, P.J. Washington's in the mix. They can go small. They can – look, if the rim running thing doesn't work, if the, if the space is getting a little clogged, PJ Washington has played center successfully and can do it. Are there weaknesses there? Sure, but they can override those weaknesses by just having all the space and basically scoring whenever they want. So that's a nice little piece of lineup versatility that they now have after the trade. 
Yeah, Dwight I... Powell is finally a fifth string big man. It's <laughs> it's been where his career has been going for the past few years. He's finally there. Like they've got Dan Gafford to insulate against that as well. They've got Maxi who can also be switchable, like PJ. They can run double like uh Maxi and PJ lineups. I'm just I'm very positive on them. But go on, XJ. No, I was gonna say I I I don't want to put a damper on it. I'm not as high as their title content on their title contention as as you are jack i i think that i have them in the second tier i don't have them in the top tier with the the three teams that we talk about and i i think there are a few matchups that are going to be difficult for them we didn't get to talk about this team and we've been talking for a long time it's just been such a fun conversation um but minnesota i i don't think they really match up well with minnesota so i think that that'll be a tough matchup for them and and I also think, I, despite OKC getting blown out by them uh, pretty recently, I, I also think that's a tough matchup for them moving forward as well. So I think there are some teams that can give them a lot of trouble. I do think, I agree with you, Jack, they kind of have uh, the best shot at Denver um, in an interesting way. So when we're talking about like matchups and kind of could they get there by beating the best teams, they could. But I, I, I'm a little concerned about their defense. And I think if a team has the wings to throw at them, the slow Luke and Kyrie down, like a team like OKC does and a, a team like Minnesota does, I think that they're going to also have trouble on the opposite end trying to stop them from scoring. So um, that'd be my concern is just kind of the defensive end if you're able to slow down the offense just enough. Um, but yeah, I, I think they're definitely a second tier contender to me. I wanted to bring up Minnesota earlier because I feel like they also are the worst matchup for OKC, which I don't know if, if Minnesota is a tough matchup for two, like clear, you know, uh, second tier teams or whatever, maybe that says something about them. Cause the, the data certainly likes Minnesota. I, I wonder why for whatever reason, there's just, maybe it's just the go bear towns thing. People still just don't believe it, but there's something about Minnesota that makes people myself included not excited to talk about them in these conversations, but I feel like they definitely belong in it, right? I don't know if we have time to have a Minnesota conversation, but Jeff, I want to say you, Jeff, convinced me that <laughs> about to, to, to jump off the Minnesota bandwagon. I was fully on the Minnesota bandwagon, and then Jeff comes in and he's like, you know, I don't think they could score consistently enough if Edwards doesn't go crazy. And I was like, ah, oh, but what about Towns? And he's like, yeah, I don't know if Towns is going to be able to do enough. And then I watched, there was like two or three Minnesota games in a row. One was against the Knicks. And I was like, holy shit, Jeff is right. The Knicks literally manhandled them on both ends of the court. They played Conley off the court. Randall dominated both of their, domino, dominated Nikhil Alexander-Walker, dominated uh, McDaniels, and they just ran them off the court. I was like, oh, wait, they maybe they do have too many flaws and weaknesses. But literally since those couple of games, they just went on a tear their defense is fully clicking they're like plus 10 per 100 since january 1st the offense is holding its own towns has been incredible their defense has been one of the best defenses that we've seen in like the past like decade i i don't know yeah i mean they are they are just that good so yeah i mean that's that's it, it it's towns i think i think you're gonna get what you get from edwards i think towns is the x factor like if he's he's an all NBA level talent, but there's just been it's I keep using this word. It's just been a clunky transition to him being the guy to him trying to figure out how to be the second option. And then you throw in Gobert. Now, all of a sudden, he's playing out of position. It's it's been hot and cold with towns, but I agree. He's been great lately. They're third net rating. Like, I don't know. Like, 
I'm, I'm always going to be open to being wrong and to adjusting my viewpoint when new information comes in. And the more I think about Minnesota, the more it's like, do I think they can win a championship? No, I, I still believe the offense is going to stall in some of the big moments, but they're going to be tough for whoever they play, including Denver, including OKC, including Dallas. Like they're going to be a tough matchup in my opinion. And I think so many of the teams that we've spoken about today really have sort of size in absolute bundles, bunches, whatever you want to talk about. Even OKC, like they might not have the size at the big positions, but they've got sort of these big burly wings in your Jalen Williams, in sort of Gordon Hayward being added now. Lou Dort plays up. And I think that explains sort of pre-pod, we were tempted to talk about Golden uh, Golden State Warriors, but that to me explains why we're not talking about Golden State and why we're not talking about Sacramento, because I just think that those two teams in the current climate, I don't believe that they really have enough size to compete with these other fringe teams that we've spoken about. Perhaps, you know, if Golden State get it together, as they seemingly have done over sort of like the last five, six game stretch, once Draymond has come back, now that Jonathan Kaminga has been fully actualized, you know, there, there's less load on Steph Curry. We've still got Chris Paul to come back to this team. Maybe they can make a run, but I just think I'm a little bit scarred from watching that Lakers series from last year. I don't know if I can trust them anymore. And in terms of Minnesota, yeah, we've really stumbled upon the point that, hey, if you're a tough matchup for everyone, you're probably going to have a pretty good postseason run. My my only argument would be is that Luca has played Minnesota twice this year. He scored 34 and 39 points on plus true shooting efficiency. They have Jaden McDaniels and they have Rudy Gobert. He should not be doing that. He is still doing that. It's like, to me, Luca is the single most, it's hard because Jokic exists. He's like right there as the single most unguardable guy in the league. If I had to make someone in a lab, maybe aside from OG Ananobi to go out there and guard Luca one-on-one, it would be Jaden McDaniels and he's still giving him hell. I that's a, that's a playoff series that I'm really, really interested to see. Guys, any sort of closing thoughts on any other teams that we haven't touched upon? Or are we wanting to get out of here after recording for two hours and one minute? Yeah, I just, I mean, the Lakers and Sixers are two teams we didn't talk about, but like the Sixers, it's just, is Embiid healthier, isn't he? That's that's the crux of that conversation. But I just don't want to piss Philly fans off because we know what they're capable of. And even more so, Lakers, like Lakers fans, they're, they're nuts too. And it's just... Are LeBron and Anthony Davis top 10 players or are they not like that's the, those are the two conversations there. So apologies if you tuned in to hear about, you know, who you believe are fringe contenders and you didn't hear about them, but it doesn't mean they're not. It just wasn't, (laughs) there wasn't a lot to talk about there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the the last one for me is, uh, you know, before you, you, you take us home, Jack is, is Phoenix. We didn't talk about Phoenix as well. Um, you know, Phoenix has been plus seven per 100 since January 1st, fifth in offense, seventh in defense in that time, first in effective field goal percentage. The only thing really slowing them down is like they turn the ball over a little bit. I think as simplistic as it is in a playoff environment, it's just going to be hard to stop Booker and Durant. So that's just, that's just a reality. So that wasn't, I felt like wasn't the best conversation to have, but they're definitely, definitely up there as well. I agree. And I think that they're far better equipped to match up against a team like Denver this year. I think last year we saw sort of a really sort of ideal time to play the Suns for Denver in that they always had a guy that was probably like not so willing to let it fly from three or they had someone like Chris Paul that wanted to slow the game down a little bit. I think with Bradley Beal, 
Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, they have three dynamic pick and roll operators that can get to the three off the dribble. And with the additions of Eric Gordon and Grayson Allen, they have that guy that can punish if you're leaving that skip pass, which previously was Josh Kogi. And I think that Denver were happy sort of living with that last year. I think it's unfair to write off Phoenix. We would have spoken about them if we were happy to do a three-hour podcast. And I think these guys are. I think it's me that's really throwing the towel in here, which is awful when you've got guests on. But guys, I've really, really enjoyed it. I'm with you, Jack. I'm with you, Jack. It's it's been a marathon, but it's been great. It's been a marathon. It has. I'm so sorry. I say to all my guests before we start, like, I really don't want to take up too much of your time. Let me know how long you've got. And here we are, two hours in. I think I'm going to borrow your guys' thing of splitting this up into two episodes and releasing it as a two-parter because i i listeners if you're still here thank you very much go and check out jeff go and check out xj go and check out the hot hand theory the Knicks film school podcast as well guys what have you got coming up i think that you have fred cats on last on your last hot hand episode and that was a great listen uh you've had jonathan macri on from Knicks film school as well who does great stuff but as you can tell these guys are nba generalists they might be Knicks specialists but they can talk hoops for two hours about whatever team you want to throw at them yeah, uh, you know, just coming up is just going to be me and Jeff breaking things down like we usually do. Uh, you know, the pitch for hot hand theory is really that we just are all about looking at the game and, you know, kind of non-traditional ways. We talk about breaking the game down from an analytical perspective, and it's it's definitely that, but it's really about using the best tools that we have at our disposal to understand what's happening about the game of basketball. Um, you know, obviously it's such a beautiful and complex game and there's so many moving parts and so many trade-offs and so much uncertainty as we've explored a lot here today. And uh, yeah, we just want to explore as many facets of evaluation of the game as possible um, and make some of the data that's available more accessible and interesting and, and fun for everyone. So that's what we do at High Hand Theory. Yeah, and if you've listened to this podcast or just listened to the last couple minutes, you know why XJ is like the voice and I'm just sort of there. You know, like he's he's the talker and he's it's the... not true at all. But. <laughs> um, coming up though, you know, from a guest perspective, we actually um, are going to have Mark Schindler on, which I mean, he's... Me, me and... Uh, look, me and XJ love the Knicks and we love talking about the Knicks, but when you talk about the same team week in and week out, it, you find conversations get repetitive and it's hard to do what we're trying to do in terms of, like I said, make analytics more accessible, try to help people try to help frame the conversations better. I guess that sounds arrogant, but I don't mean in an arrogant way. Um, And, you know, Mark is one of, he's at the forefront of full NBA discourse. So excited to talk to him and excited to have him on. And yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll be back next week with the show with just being XJ. So check us out. We, we love pretty much everything we do. XJ just had a, a great short about Dante DiVincenzo. He just put it together talking about how DiVincenzo basically said that he learned a new shooting form from step playing with Steph Curry. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, if you were to just blindly look at DiVincenzo's three point shooting, you would just be like, Oh, this is an outlier. It can't sustain. I think that's a totally rational analytical perspective. And then you have DiVincenzo basically being like, well, I'm not the same shooter that I was two years ago. And that's so interesting because it, even as someone who values analytics the way I do, it's important to remember that you can't just be purely robotic with it and you have to be um, open-minded with how you face these things. And I love that. I love that this isn't a solved game, you know, and I love that it's always evolving. So, you know, these are the things we talk about each week. 
Guys, if you're going to tune into the next episode of the Hot Hand Theory podcast, look forward to the food takes. Mark is the most rogue person on maybe the entirety of Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. When it comes to talking about food, he's also excellent at talking about basketball as well. I'd love to have him on the podcast. Guys, put in a good word for me. Tell him it won't take two hours every time. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. And listeners at home, I really hope you've enjoyed the conversation too. Links to Jeff, XJ, the podcasts are all going to be in the description below. Like, rate, subscribe, go and check them out and make sure you tune back in next week for another episode of the Dropstep Podcast.